Okay, take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're actually going to cover some verses this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. I've entitled this first lesson, and we will probably keep this lesson, this title uh, throughout these first 14 verses. I've entitled it, All Spiritual Blessings. All Spiritual Blessings, part one. I, I, t- I, I don't know about you. But I, I constantly find myself uh, in my mind, if not moving my mouth to what my mind thinks, uh, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I think, hey, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, what a, what a blessed privilege to those who are by nature sinners, enemies of God in our minds by wicked work, strangers to the covenants of promise, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2, without hope and without God in this world, but God, who's rich in mercy and grace and kindness and love toward the object of his love. He has blessed us. Now you think about that. He's blessed us with, and this is where we we have to be very careful. This world has has created this false narrative that somehow or another that the blessings of God revolve around the things of time and sense. That's not what they revolve about. That's not the goal and purpose of it. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I prefer spiritual blessings to physical blessings any day. Because anything you get physically, you know what? At best, it's temporal. I, I, one of the things that one, one passage that I always think about is 1 John chapter 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, or all of these things, what are they? They're of the earth. They're the world. They're earthly. And then he says this, in all these things, what's happening to them? Passing away. They're temporary. One, one thing I do remember from my, my youth when I was in school, I remember what the law of thermodynamics is. And I always remember what Bucky Murdoch told us. If you set a, a brick out there, and I mean, we, back then I kind of was wavering on that uh, evolution thing and how long we had been here. But he said, you can set a brick outside and leave a brick out there in a million years from now, the brick ain't going to turn into a bar of gold. What's going to happen to it? It's going to turn back into its elements. The law of thermodynamics tells us everything, what's happening to it. It's not getting better. It's wearing out. Why you have to buy a new car? It's why your air conditioner goes out. That's why we wear out. You you can try as hard as you want to fix it up and paste over it and color it and clean it and do everything, lubricate it, change all the tires, everything about it. Eventually, what happens to it? It wears out. These blessings don't ever go away. They don't ever waver. They're unchangeable. The the spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with, they are as eternal as the God who blessed us with them. But 
the thing I find so interesting about the book of Ephesians more than any other of the epistles that Paul wrote is the way he starts out with what most people in religion are scared to death of or deny or deflect and try to say it's, un- it's unimportant. Now, we'll get to this in just a few minutes. You've got to realize this, this is what's called a, it's a general epistle. It wasn't written to any particular church. We'll see that in just a few minutes. But it was written to everybody that would read this epistle. So he didn't just write this to those at Ephesus, but to all the saints in all the churches in all time without regard to their spiritual maturity or immaturity. And what does he start out with? The grandest of doctrines. Which one? God's sovereign grace. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, not charging their transgressions unto them. But now notice how the way he begins this order, this, this epistle. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, as with every other epistle that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, he always started them the same way. Every one of them. I don't care whether it's Titus, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. He always started it the same way. These people knew Paul. Paul had been through almost all of these places on missionary journeys. He had been the, the, the means by which God had brought the gospel to the place, to the regions, to where they were at. But he always started the same way. What did he do? He begins by identifying himself as well as his office within the church where God had put him. And that's how he starts out, Paul. Just simply Paul. Not Saint Paul. Not the apostle. He doesn't say the apostle Paul. What is it? It's just Paul. Very simple. Very humble. Without any fanfare, without any grand oratory, Paul just simply and humbly identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. One sent forth. Sent forth by whom? By a church? By a seminary? By his mother or his father? Like so many today, we have... One of the things that I remember, one, one of the biggest reformed name preachers, uh, he wrote in his own uh, testimony, you can find it online, ask me after service and I'll give you his name. I, I, don't, yeah, I don't name names anymore from the pulpit. But in his testimony, they were talking about why he was a preacher and he said, my great-grandfather was a preacher and my grandfather was a preacher and my daddy was a preacher and I'm a preacher. I'm going to tell you what, this thing ain't passed by lineage. 
neither one of my, and they might, I don't think so, neither one of my boys are going to be preachers. I never thought, if you'd asked me when me and Kenny were growing together in, in Manny, Louisiana, do you think Richard Warmack, do you know, if Kenny looked at me and said, Richard, you know one day you're going to be preaching the gospel in, in Ruston, Louisiana, I'd, I'd probably slapped you. Then you'd have whooped me, but I'd still slapped you. And I thought, what are you talking about? This isn't something, but, and, he, and he made this comment. He said, being raised by preachers, I always knew the gospel. Folks, that's a denial of what the Scripture says. I'm going to tell you what, you didn't start out knowing this gospel. We were dead. See, that, that's a denial of another doctrinal truth. Ephesians 2 tells us where were we when we were born. Dead in trespasses and sin. You tell me how you've known it your whole life. But that's just testimony. That's most people's testimony. Like Henry used to say there was a young boy one time, he had a was asked him to write his test give his testimony at church that Sunday, and he wrote it all down and put it in a locker or something. I can't remember exactly how Henry told it, but but he said he put it in a locker and went back to get it, and rats had ate it. And when he got up, the guy said, it's time for you to give your testimony. He said, I can't give it. He said, why? He said, the rats ate it up. And Henry said, that's what most people's testimonies are. They're ate up by rats. No, there, there's nothing about You listen, most people talk about their conversion. It's all about who? Those born of God, who's it all about? My testimony isn't about me. It's Christ. Who he is, what he did, what he accomplished. Where he is now, what he's promised me, what he's given me freely in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the emphasis here, uh, the divine initiative of Paul's calling was not himself. God called him to this ministry. You think about this, Paul's salvation, his message, his authority, and his commission, where did it come from? God called him. God called him. And none of it originated with Paul. Paul wasn't sitting there one day and think, I've got a story to tell. I've got, to, I've, got, I've got to get out there and tell everybody that listened to me. Paul's mentality was not, I'm the only one that's got a bucket and the world's on fire. And I've got to put it out. And he certainly didn't originate from any other men. Matter of fact, the other men that saw him when God put him in the gospel ministry, they were afraid of him. Because they thought, what was it? They thought, this is, this is another ploy. He's, he's going to lure us in, and then he's going to trick us and turn on us and going to destroy us like he's destroyed everything else before. Look over to Acts chapter. Hold your place here in Ephesians. Look over to Acts chapter 9. Now, this is who this Paul is. Acts chapter 9 tells us, verse 1, and Saul, there's Paul, Think about it now. And Saul, verse 1, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him a letter. You notice, the high priest didn't come up with this. Huh? The high priest didn't call Saul of Tarsus in and say, hey, look, I think you need to go on a mission and go down there to Damascus 
And if you want to, I'll write you a letter and you can go down there and get these people and bring them back up here and put them on trial. Paul went to him. Saul, look, Saul hated, you, you know, get that in your mind. He hated Christ. He didn't just have a little, little disregard. He hated Christ and he hated the way. Absolutely hated it. Wanted it destroyed and gone. And so he, he goes to him and desires a letter to go to Damascus and if found any of this way. See, he doesn't even call it Christ's people. He said, they just referred to it in a derogatory sense, this way. I, and when I think about this way, I always think about there's a way that seems right unto man and the end of that way, what is it? It's death. Spiritual death. Paul was seeking to destroy, Saul of Tarsus was seeking to destroy the only true way. And in seeking to destroy the only true way, he thought he was doing the right way. And so he goes up, heads up, makes his way, gets the leg, gets what he wants, because that's what he wants. And I, I, they probably were like, get, get him out. He probably troubled him to death. Get him out of our hair. Let's send him on down there. He's persistent. So he makes his way, and who does he meet along the way? The Lord Jesus Christ meets him on the road to Damascus. And in verse 4 it says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Verse 5, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the, the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, here we go, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Doesn't say what you you might do. You only told what you must do. And so he went. Went straightway, and God sent a man, Ananias. And when God told Ananias to go down to Saul of Tarsus, because God had done a work of grace in his heart, Ananias said, Lord, I've heard about that dude. <laughs> I don't want to be anywhere near him. And our Lord says to him, Arise and go into the street, verse 11, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And it's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard, heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath the authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. And here's why he's an apostle, for he is a chosen vessel. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. And not only was the apostle to the Gentile, but who else is he going to bear the, the gospel to? To the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's the, the, the same Lord that sends Ananias to tell this man what he must suffer for my name's sake. Christ said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. For what? 
for my name's sake. Huh? Righteousness sake. Now listen, this is so important. I, I, I can still hear Henry over 40 years ago, 35, 36 years ago, I can still Henry made this comment and when he was preaching uh, on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostles are all dead and gone. There are no apostles today. None. And listen to me, there will be no more apostles. In order for one to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, they first of all, what they had to they had to actually have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to have handled him with their hands, walked with him, talked with him, been in his presence. They had to listen, they had to get their gospel. In order to be an apostle, you had to get your gospel where? Directly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is also important. In order to be an apostle, they had to be commissioned directly by God Himself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as one sin of God, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of them, listen, all of the apostles had unique gifts, did they not? And they had, listen, they, they had the capability to perform miracles that confirmed that they were indeed the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, like I, his Lord before him, what did he do? He raised the dead. Paul, like his Lord before him, remember that night he preached all night? The guy fell asleep up in the loft and fell out and died. That'd break your, your revival meeting up, wouldn't it? And what Paul do? Paul stretched himself out on that guy that was dead, and he came back to life. Remember when he was on Malta, when he was shipwrecked, and the serpent, he reached into the fire, and the serpent bit him on the hand, a deadly asp, and everybody just sat down, and it's like, let's see what's going to happen. And he just shook it off into the fire. What does that it's a confirmation that he was sin of God. That he was truly an apostle. But this is what's so uniquely important about all these apostles. They were appointed and sent out as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were sent out with a word. What word? The word of reconciliation. Listen to you. Here, here's what they all preach. Peter, Paul, James, John... Same thing we preach and believe. What they preach at? Here's what they preached at. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself and by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us a ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that is to say, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, not charging their trespasses unto them, and hath committed to us the word of reconciliation. We're not, listen, we're not calling on men to do something to get reconciled. What do we tell them? Same thing the Apostle Paul told them. God was in Christ reconciling the world, the world being who? Not all men and women without exception. Who did he reconcile? Reconciliation means make peace, to put it as simply as I can. And the only way peace can be made is what? It has to be forgiveness of sins. And so in other words, when he says he's made he reconciled the world himself, what did he do? 
He's made peace with himself with whoever the world is. And so we're telling sinners, if you're here this morning, God made peace with his people through Christ's accomplished death. Will you believe that? I know by nature you can't. But you know what? His sheep hear that voice. They don't hear the voice of another. They listen. God's sheep don't listen to a general atonement. That's important. I'm going to tell you what, that, 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 that's almost fighting words here. The Christ, that this, the Christ of my family, the Christ of your family, unless they believe this gospel, is another Christ. Pure and simple. It's just not a matter, little matter of doctrinal difference. Their Christ came, lived, died, rose again, shed his blood indiscriminately for all men and women without exception is equally for Judas Iscariot and Saul of Tarsus. In other words, Christ shed his blood for men and women who are right now suffering for the same thing he suffered for. But see, that's the thing. He didn't suffer for Judas Iscariot. He didn't, he didn't shed one drop of, sense of blood, one drop of his blood, not one drop of it, for any of the reprobates. He laid down his life for the sheep, not goats. So to say that, that Christ loved people so much that he died for the world is to deny that he's got a people. Because there's a possibility under that kind of scurrious doctrine that he could have had nobody. What if they'd all said no? Huh? Then where would he have been? I, I, I despise that Christ. Matter of fact, I, I, I like... like Elijah, when he mocked those, those priests, those false priests, I, I mocked their God. I, I don't mean to be ugly, but that, that, he's a mockery. He's not a God at all. Hey, Isaiah said that your God's got hands, got feet, got eyes, got ears, got legs, can't walk, can't talk, can't move, can't do anything. Waiting on you to do something. Heard that all my life in false religion, didn't you? Didn't you too? What will you do with Jesus? I'm going to tell you, you ain't doing nothing with him. The question is, what God, what's he done with he, us? That's what's so essential. But here's the next thing. He says that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. You see that? Not by his will, according to his way, according to what he wanted, was not dependent upon him, was not dependent at any time on human merit. Human ability, none of it. Human power, human influence. It all begins by God's power and God's sovereign will. All of it. I always think about this when I think about the salvation of, of sinners. I think about Acts 13 where he, in verse 38 and 39, he made that great declaration about that... Um, 
by, by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And when he declared that at the end of it, it said when the, when the Gentiles heard this, heard that, that through this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, all believing are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It says the Gentiles rejoice, heard this, they rejoiced, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, not one more, not one less, many as were ordained to eternal life, what? Believed. Every one of them. Man's religion, you know what it begins with? It begins and ends with man. The religion of God begins with and depends only on one thing. It depends on the God who purposed it and the God who planned it. But notice what he says next. This epistle, who's it written to? To the saints. To the saints which are at Ephesus. And to the faithful in Christ Jesus. These aren't two different groups. This is one and the same. They're saints, but not only are they saints, what are they? They're faithful in Christ Jesus. They're not faithful in their own strength, their own power, their own ability. Like I told you at the beginning of this lesson, this, this word Ephesians, Ephesus, if you look at it, it didn't actually appear in the original manuscript. And it's because this letter was, uh, was not to the Ephesian believers in particular. It was a circular letter, meaning it was read by each church uh, in each particular area. But it was written to all believers in general, all of them. And one of the things that makes this unique opening different from some of the other epistles, and it lets us know that it wasn't intended for this specific congregation alone, is most of the time when Paul opened his greeting to other churches, he named particular individuals who were in those local congregations. He didn't do that here. But here's what's so important to me and you as children of God. Since it's a circular, general letter to all the church, every church that reads this letter, what can you do? You can insert your name there. <laughs> Blessed be that this, this, this written to the saints and the faithful. I think that's another thing we don't pay enough attention to is what we are. I don't, you know, I, we don't think of ourselves as saintly, do we? I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, don't have a, I, don't, I don't have a halo up here. <laughs> I think most people, I think my granddaughter and my sons think I got horns is what I got more than a halo. But he, 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 this original, original phrase here, to the saints, it's one word in the original. And this, I wrote this into my notes this morning as I was going back over that. that it, the original word translated to the saints, it means holy. It means separated to God. Listen to this, worthy of respect. <laughs> Think about that, worthy of respect. You, do, do you think for one second in yourself that you're worthy of respect? I don't think so. I have to live with this person. And to me, I, I tell you what, 36 years of knowing the Lord or better being known of the Lord, 
there's not one thing in me, in myself, worthy of any respect. Nothing I've done, nothing I've prayed, no kindness I've showed. Nothing's worthy of respect. First, especially, maybe respect from other friends or neighbors that think, well, he's a friendly sort of guy. <laughs> but not worthy of God's respect. Not at all. It, 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 it identifies, this phrase, to the saints, it identifies those who have been set apart by God for his own possession and for his own service. And it denotes a, a position, the believer's position before God. Personally, what are we? We're sinners, and we will never get away from that. But positionally, what are we? We're saints. Uh-huh. We're saints. And we didn't get that way by some church commission or the Pope canonizing us and making us saints. Positionally, we're holy. You think about it. holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight. Because that's all that matters. It, it isn't what you think of me, and it's not what I think of you. It's how does God view me. See, that's what matters. That's what they weren't honest with us about in religion. It was God, you've got to do something that will make God respect you. Well, try as you may, you ain't ever going to get this God to respect you, pardon the bad English. <laughs> you could get down and you could, you could fall on your face right now and cry and pray till the end of time. It's not gaining any respect with this God at all. And here's the thing. We're holy and without blame before him because, listen, we have a righteousness. We have a righteousness that answers the demands of God's law and justice, a righteousness that was through the doing and dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, his very obedience unto death, and it is charged to me, imputed to me, and it's mine. It's mine. And these saints, he describes them this way, they're the faithful. They're the faithful to go to church, right? (laughs) They're the faithful to always pray. They're the faithful to be kind and compassionate, to always love God and always love their neighbors. Is that what he means by this? The faithful? No, we're faithful where? In Christ Jesus. Who are the saints? They are those who believe God's promise in spite of themselves. Always looking to, resting, running the race with patience, looking where? To Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. And that's how they're identified. They're they're, they're set apart by the Spirit in new birth, regeneration, and conversion. And this is is so important for you and I to understand. It's wrong to refer to anybody as a saint, no matter how they appear outwardly to you and me, who doesn't give evidence that they're in the faith. They don't give evidence of true faith in Christ as the Lord their righteousness and true repentance, turning their... Turn it, change in their mind, radical change of mind about what removed God's wrath and gained God's favor. But on the other end of that, it's equally wrong to deny that anybody's a saint, no matter how they appear, who gives evidence of true faith and true repentance. 
This would drive a religious person mad. And I say this very carefully, but it's true. How did God view King David when he was in Bathsheba's arms? Did he stop being an apple of God's eye? Was God angry with him? Take vengeance on him? Cast him out of his presence? No, 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 no. Why? David's hope. Blessed transgressions forgiven. Blessed Iniquities covered. Blessed the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin and in whose spirit is no guile. Now, does that mean, Brother Richard, that you're saying it's all right for me to go out and commit adultery? If you think that, one of us is stupid. If you think that's what I'm saying by that. You know I don't think that. You know I don't believe the Scripture teaches that. But I'm telling you, there's hope for us because of this great truth. Because, see, we get wound up about that, but what about those little sins we commit that nobody sees? It's just up in our heads. Just as vile. You understand that? God does not look at sin like you and me look at sin. There's not big ones and little ones. They don't stack up on a scale. One sin, ten billion sins. You know what? Wages of sin, death. Demands eternal condemnation. And God's going to get it. And He's either going to get it in the person of a substitute or He's going to demand it from the sinner who has no substitute. But now, notice what He says to the faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, in Paul's epistles, the ones that he wrote, the phrase, in Christ Jesus, appears 130 times. <laughs> 130 times. And you know what that speaks of? That speaks about the believer's spiritual union with who? With the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's divine appointment. And all of it is according to God's elect in love. This phrase, it includes the fact, you think about this, that God has made us one with Christ in name and in nature and in the view of his law and justice. As God sees Christ, he sees me. Why? I mean him. If any man be in Christ, we've been through that, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, new creature. It also includes these blessed truths that, that God has appointed Christ to be my mediator and my surety. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Which men? Those that are in him. That's who he's the mediator for. And Christ is our representative, the representative of God. He's merited for us, what? According to verse 3, all spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. How did he do that? In Christ. Period. And he now rules and reigns to make sure that what? Each one of the objects of his love become partakers of all these spiritual blessings. 
See, Paul presents Christ as the glorified, ascended mediator in a church made holy in him. Listen to this. But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then he adds this little paraphrase in parentheses. He had, he, he's raised us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. What's grace? It's Christ. That's what, that's what grace is. All the grace of God found one place. It's in Christ. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together where? In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are we at today? We're in Ruston, Louisiana, Grace Baptist Church, 2808 Trent Street. Physically. Where are we at spiritually? We're sitting together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, the fact that I'm in my mediator, where am I going to be one day? Because he said this, did he not? Because I live. What about you? What about all those he lives for, ever liveth for? You live too. And we do. We do. The whole sense this has to do with establishing the hearts of his people. That's how he starts off. Huh? Doesn't end with it. He starts with it. I, I, I can't help but think about the writer of Hebrews where Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, forever. Be not cared about by diverse and strange doctrine for it is a good thing for the heart to be established with what I tell you that word grace is. It's good for your heart to be established with Christ. That you're one with Him. That God views you holy, accepted in the beloved. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Look at verse 2 and we'll quit. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Which comes first? Grace. Grace comes before peace. Now, grace here, when we think about the way he uses it, grace is both objective and subjective. Objectively, what does grace include? It includes all spiritual blessings from election to eternity in heaven. Subjectively, it includes everything necessary from the new birth, that's regeneration and conversion, to final glory. Well, what's peace? Peace is the eternal removal of God's wrath and the eternal procurement of God's favor based on the righteousness of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a sinner's only hope and cause of peace and reconciliation. Look over at Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 18. We'll quit right here. Notice this. Wherefore, remember that you being, Ephesians 2, verse 11, you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hand, that at that time, that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus. There's that in Christ Jesus again. Now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, what? We're made nigh by the blood of Christ. How? By our works? No, by the blood of Christ. For here, Here's why. He is our peace. Who? Christ. 
Always think about those angels. Remember those shepherds in their field by night? We always hear at Christmas time. And the host of heavenly angels appeared in heaven. What did they sing? Peace on earth. Because where's the only place peace is at? Between God and man. And that person. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward man. For he is our peace. Now notice what he's done. Who hath made both one, both Jew and Gentile, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man making peace. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Peace was obtained one place, one time, by one person even by our Lord Jesus Christ. But now notice this. Grace and peace, they come from who? They come from God our Father, right? God our Father, why? He's the source and originator of our salvation. But he also states, who else does this grace and peace come from? From our Lord Jesus Christ. Who? The second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Why? Grace and peace from God the Son. He purchased it. He procured it. How? He established the righteousness that enables God to be just when he justifies a sinner like me. Now we'll quit right there. We'll come back next week and we'll pick up in verse 3. You're dismissed the worship. I appreciate your presence.